Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Sitret Podcast. We are excited to be back, and you have at the command table currently is Jim Ariskany with a boatload of information and stories about Historicon. That's me. I'm back. You're not getting rid of me that easy. <laughs> and you, and then there is me, G, and uh, Chris might pop in here in a little bit, and then Ralph is off uh, doing some other projects, so he may or may not be joining us today, but uh, right now... I'm going to turn the mic over to Jim, and he's going to tell us all about Historicon, which he worked with the guys over at On Tabletop, formerly known as Beast of War. Um, this was a show that I was supposed to attend. Unfortunately, we've had some things with family, and my daughter was graduating, so it, timing just turned around on itself. So with that in mind, Jim, take it away. Okay, yeah. Uh, Historicon was great. I mean, there's no other, there's no other adjective that really, you know, fits the bill on that one uh before we get too started i did want to give a quick shout out to some of our sit rep subscribers that i actually ran across oh fantastic at, at historicon yeah we had uh, i ran across bob um brian uh chip and uh, yeah a bunch of other guys um yeah, it was a great time uh i won't like mention the, the person's name specifically but um ran across one guy at the uh, concession stand so i went out to uh we were, we were in the where we were in the media bay or whatever the little media room and i was like man i'm getting hungry and i saw somebody eating pizza i'm not supposed to be eating pizza but i was like you know what i'm at a convention <laughs> i'm gonna have some fun and uh i'm standing there in line waiting for like you know your typical you know baseball park kind of cheap slice of pizza or whatever and i'm talking to the person ordering the pizza and uh the person in front of me just kind of turns to me real quick and he's like you have a podcast don't you i'm like well i'm on a couple of I'm, I'm i'm on a podcast and um, he's like, yeah, yeah, you guys do sit rep, don't you? I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> we actually have a, uh, you know, because there were a lot of people there that knew me or that knew us, you know, obviously from on tabletop or whatever. Um, and a lot of people that kind of cross over, like, the, you know, know us from both. But it was neat, uh, you know, coming across, like, some actual uh, sit rep uh, podcast subscribers. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, that, how cool is that, huh? You're getting Definitely. to be YouTube famous. We're, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we got a long road to go on that one, but... Yeah, we're, we're on our way, but um, yeah, that con was huge. Um, basically, four floors wow. of, a, uh, of a pretty major convention center, four and a half days. Um, one thing I noticed, um, I mean, I'm not really a convention guy. Um, the last convention I've ever attended was a Star Trek convention in 1992, where we watched um, John Delancey, who plays Q, talk about days of our lives because he couldn't give a damn about Star Trek. <laughs> um, yeah. He, he was, like, asking all these questions. People were, like, asking him questions. He was like, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was great working with everybody. Yeah, it was fun. And then some, uh, God bless her. I mean, in 1992, she was already pushing, like, 90 years old. She kind of struggles up in the back of the hall, and she's like, uh, I wanted to ask a question because apparently he used to be on Days of Our Lives yep. or something. Yeah, he did. Asked the question, and then that was it. It's like 35 minutes of just, oh, he lit up like a Christmas tree. And there's like 500 Star Trek fans and Klingon makeup going, oh, I thought we were going to talk about Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of put me off conventions for a while. But um, I went to this one, and it was, it was huge, man. It was absolutely monstrous. But one of the things I did kind of notice – was, I mean, compared to a lot of other events like Salute or UK Games Expo or um, Gen Con, was that this one was surprisingly uncorporate. 
um, there wasn't a lot of selling going on. There was a trader's hall and uh, I spent uh, way too much money in the trader's hall. But we'll talk about that in a little <laughs> bit. Um, there was uh, there was a little thing they called Wally's basement that was literally in the basement. Um, it was non-trader. You couldn't go in there if you had like, like a, if you actually owned a store or anything like that, or a website, if you were, it had like some sort of commercial license, it was literally, I've got too much stuff. Please take some of it. You know, it was like a poor man's eBay kind of thing. Oh, how cool. Oh, there was a lot of little treasures down there. We'll get into that. I think I spent more money there than I did in the, uh, the quote unquote traders hall. Wow. Um, yeah, it was great. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, other than that, there wasn't a lot. There was a huge tournament hall and then like three floors of games. It was all tables. And uh, there, it wasn't about, you know, just here's a trade show to come and spend money. It was here it is to, to play games. And I would say at least one game out of three, you know, like, like that was literally our job. You know, Jerry and I are walking around these tables going, okay, here's a table. People are asking for this genre, Napoleonic, American Revolution, you know, moderns, whatever. Hey guys, we'd like to talk to you. We're so and so from SitRep. We're so and so from on tabletop. Can we talk to you with the camera for five minutes? And they're like, yeah, sure. And then you go to talk to them, and you're like, this is the game. What system is it? And you're expecting bolt action, chain of command, force on force, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's always like, no, this is just a game that we came up with at the club. This is a game that we do at the convention. This is, by the way, here's our rule book. And hands like three sheets of staple together, um, uh, you know, eight and a half by eleven paper. Here, here are the rules. You know, it was a lot of homegrown games, which I am a, I mean, anyone who knows me from the site, I mean, I'm a huge fan of that stuff. Um, I'm probably like one of the worst gaming customers because, you know, I don't buy games. I just write the <laughs> game stuff. But that was a lot of people at the con were running their own games. So that was really refreshing. And it was mostly, you know, participation games was really the bulk of the con. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you think sorry, about yeah. it, it goes back to kind of the roots of these kind of conventions where it was people who really get into that genre and, you know, it's not so commercialized. It's it's about true gaming, you know, in itself. Yep. And, uh, yeah, those were pretty much, I mean, there's a bunch of highlights. I literally have to break my highlights into a couple of categories. You know, well, here was my favorite table and here was my favorite participation game. And here was my favorite seminar. Um Oh, I forgot about the seminars. Okay, so yeah, it's five, it's three full floors and parts of three other floors. Wow. So I'm call, I'm calling it four floors, but it was really spread out across like eight areas of a really, you know, big hotel. This this was not a small convention. I mean, it wasn't, you know, Gen Con, but it was um it was big. It was a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. Uh so okay, um it was me, Jerry and Justin uh, from on tabletop. Uh poor Justin never really got out of the media room very much. Because with only three people there and yeah. one camera, you know, it was uh, me and Jerry go out and film and interview. And then we come back and we just, you know, give him the card, throw him a bunch of content. And then he gets to edit it, render it, upload it and get the blog going or whatever. Yep. Um, so he almost never got out of the media room. But the media room looked like something out of the West Wing. This was a really awesome convention center. And the... Uh, uh, Joby Miller, a quick shout out to uh, you know the coordinator of the event and the people at the Marriott and the people at his, at the at the actual society, um, historical miniature gaming society, I think it is. Uh, they they really did take really good care of us. When I say they took good care of us, they took good care of us. The convention uh, coordinator, like the manager of the whole show, uh, sent his wife out to pick us up in his boss's car. 
Wow. Um, to, yeah, to the airport. So got his boss to lend him his car, put his wife in the car, and so and said, go pick up these yahoos at uh, Philadelphia International. By the way, that's like two hours away. So she spent four hours on the road. You know, I, I, I basically had to reverse mug her in order to try and give her some gas money, and she still wouldn't take it. Um, but then where they set us up, it was great. It looked like something out of the West Wing. Long conference hall, two flags at the corner, or, you know, at the head of the table or whatever, you know, it looked like we were launching, uh, we were going to become Democratic uh, candidate <laughs> number 712, you know, we're going to start our race, make America game again. Um, yeah, it was great. Uh, they took really good care of us. Apparently in that hotel or in that convention, there's a, a, a very old building from Lanc- Lancaster, Pennsylvania is a very old town, um, to, uh, old by American standards. And there's a, uh, there was an old um, building there from like the early 1800s. And as the hotel was expanding, they didn't want to knock down this old building. And so they literally just built around it. So there's an old, like, turn of the 19th century brick building inside the convention, uh, actual, the actual venue. And that's where they set us up. And at the basement of that is an actual archaeological dig ongoing. You know, it's all roped off. They're actually digging for artifacts from Lord knows when. But we're upstairs, and that's where they also had all the seminars. We'll talk about the seminars for a little bit. And, uh, yeah, it looked like, uh, it looked like you know, the Republican cloakroom in there. It was great, you know. And so they had great Wi-Fi. We were able to upload everything. So we're running around, and we're going to all these tables. And uh, we just come back, and we just give it all to Justin. Justin, you know, was just, you know, working away at it. Yeah. Um, so Wally's basement was where we would um, – do our um, or where people were buying and selling or bartering. You weren't allowed to take credit cards. You know, you weren't allowed to have like an actual like commercial license. You, you couldn't have a store. Nothing could be new. It was literally just you got too much stuff, bring it and try to get rid of it and get some money for it. Um, let's see. Uh, I got a new game. Speaking of uh, to keep the topic on, on modern gaming, I did manage to pick up a uh, old copy of 1983 Assault by GDW. Hmm. So Assault is basically uh, Panzer Leader and Team Yankee got together one hot Saturday night and had a baby. And if they had a baby, that game would be Assault. It's 1980s um, platoon-level combat in, uh, in West Germany. Soviets versus Americans, and then later on they came out with expansions for the Bundeswehr, the British Army of the Rhine. There's a there's one set that I know you would love uh, called Boots and Saddles. Oh it's yeah, all, it's all American air cavalry at true 250 meters a hex scale. You know the whole thing. You set up like a whole brigade and you like try to stop like multiple Soviet tank divisions. Um, it's 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 a real game. Found a copy of that with all the counters still in the punch cards. Oh nice. So I don't know if I'm ever going to punch those counters because, again, mostly for Hex Encounter, I game electronically anyway. But it was just one of those things like, you know what? This is where half of the 1980s went for me when I was a kid. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just buy this game and keep it on my shelf. And whenever I'm having a bad day, just look at it for a second and (laughs) feel feel better for a little bit. Uh, Found an old copy of Panzer Leader that one of our subscribers might be getting. Um, We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Uh, they had one still in the plastic. He was charging <gasps> seventy five dollars for it. Oh, you should have told me. I would have bought it. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a good price for eBay. Um, it's still in the plastic. It was still in the plastic. Uh. The one I bought was not in the plastic. Uh, some of the counters were still in the punch cards, but the one in the if if you can even find it on eBay, it's usually about two hundred bucks. Yeah. 
Um, again, it's a 40-year-old piece of cardboard, so it's not about the material value. It's that these are all this game went out of print in like the late 70s, so they're all collector's items now. Nice. And again, because it's all cardboard, you know, not many of them have lasted this long. Yeah, opened it up, checked all the seams where the bifold boards come together. I mean, I've owned like six sets of Panzerleiter. That's always the first thing to go, is where the, the boards kind of join together where they fold. But everything was great, so um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, then up in the trading hall, I got a uh, – actually, no, I'm still down in the basement. I got an M24 Duster at 1 to 100. I'm sorry, an M42 Duster. That was the um, – I think they repurposed an M47 Patton mm-hmm. in the anti-aircraft roll. They put two 40 millimeters in there. Um I'm going to use that in my uh, ongoing uh, 15 millimeter uh, Vietnam army. Uh, Cause some of them saw action in Vietnam and then moving up to 20 millimeter or one to 72. Uh, I got a brand new from fields of valor um, pre-painted, you know, like beautiful, almost Corgi level, um, you know, gaming model, a, a T 72 M in desert, uh, in desert markings. Oh, wow. Nice. So I had it. I had a T 72. I think I had this exact same tank. But uh, for the Ukraine series, I repatriated it back to the motherland, so to speak, and repainted it in Soviet markings or Russian markings, you know, green camouflage and so on. Uh-huh. And so I, I basically ruined it for, <laughs> for that uh, for that article series. Um, but now I have a replacement. So I have a brand new Iraqi T-72M, which I can use with all my, you know, 1 to 72 American stuff for, you know, Desert War, Iraqi Freedom, I'm sorry, Desert Storm, Iraqi Freedom, that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, make sure you're sitting down for this. Okay. I got from, uh, again, Fields of, I think it's, it's either Fields of Valor or Fields of Honor. It's a company, I'm probably getting the name wrong, um, where you can, I mean, this is the kind of miniature you buy when you're long on money and short on time. You know, it is expensive. It's like, you know, 40, 50 bucks retail. I got it on sale for 30 but it's a true 1 to 72 UH60 Blackhawk. What? This thing is huge. It's a 20 millimeter Blackhawk. Yeah. Wow. And with, complete with, you know, door guns that, that turn, uh, uh, doors that slide open, slide shut, uh, the, the, the landing gear retracts, you know, the rotor spin, the whole nine yards. Um, again, it's, it's like it's out of the box and it's ready to play. It's not going to win a golden dragon out of the box, but it's it's you put it on the stand and boom, you have now an absolute ridiculously awesome um, gaming piece, you know, gaming miniature. So and, who is uh, the company? Uh, this is the problem. I'm probably getting wrong. It's either Fields of Valor or Fields of Honor. Okay. It's one of those two. It's something like that, and um, it's mostly they call it like it's. It's like a toy company or whatever, but okay. it's, it's not scale model. You don't have to build anything. And uh, it's not an actual miniature. It's not like, you know, Forge World or anything. But you take it out of the box and, you know, trust me, uh, I'll put up some pictures up when I finally get my dining room straightened out. <laughs> um, you take it out of the box and you have what would take you a month to build and paint, you know, clear plastic canopy, you know. None of this, you know, you have to paint it blue and then put a highlight on it. No, it's all clear. It's all hollow. You can see the people inside the house. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the real deal. Um, they aren't cheap. They aren't cheap. But again, it's like a rebate on your time. Oh, you, know, nice. you buy this out of the box. You pull a couple screws out. Like for the rotors, I had to like stick two rotors in or whatever. And you have a, uh, I, I think now it's literally my biggest miniature. And how's it scale to the um, others, you know, in that same? Is it pretty close? 
It's it's very close. Yeah, I, I have I, I have the reason I bought it in one to seventy two uh-huh. is because uh, I'm mostly a fifteen mil guy. Is uh, for whatever reason, I just whenever I got into moderns a couple years ago, I just got into twenty mil, and so all like my M1 Abrams is twenty mil. My T set my two T seventy twos, my T sixty fours, my T eighties, my two hundred and fifty infantry of various factions are all in twenty mil one to seventy two. So it's like, okay, for better or worse, with the exception of my Team Yankee stuff, which I guess is technically modern or you know, modern-ish, alternate modern, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. Except for that, all my modern stuff is 1 to 72. And uh, yeah, so I grabbed a couple of my, you know, my uh, Iraqi Freedom Marines, my Desert Storm Marines, and kind of held them up to the, to the chopper. And yeah, it's, it's imposing how huge it is. It is big. Oh, I'm going to have to look that up. I'll have to see about yeah. that. That is cool. Um, yes, yeah, so that's pretty much what I got in the trader's hall. Um, like the real, like commercial, you know, everything's still in plastic. These are actual vendors or whatever. Uh, I don't know how long you want me to keep going. No, keep uh, going. They're, you know. <laughs> it was a big convention. There was a lot yeah. going on. Um, so, uh, what was I going to say here? Um, okay. So they had the trader's hall, the tournament halls we tried to get into, um, or not like get into to play or whatever, but trying to like photograph or cover a little bit. Uh, again, most of the coverage is on ontabletop.com uh, if you want to check it out in detail. Um, so I had like a lot of favorite games or whatever, but the ones that I'm going to stick to here, just because they're moderns, uh, there was a guy there running Mind Ponzer from Lord Knows When. That's an old system. Uh, it was uh, basically uh, Team Yankee-like. Uh-huh. He had, except... <laughs> Except unlike Team Yankee, he actually had T80s on the table. That was that was the only reason I kind of dragged Jerry over there with the camera. And I was like, we're doing this guy's table. Because he actually has like the correct quote unquote <laughs> tanks on the table. So he had basically T80s and uh, looks like we have Chris has joined us. Chris, are you there? Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you guys. Can you guys hear me? Oh yeah, we uh, can yeah. definitely hear you. Awesome. Okay. Hey, can you turn your um, gain down just a little bit, Chris? You're really coming across loud. Okay, hold on. Uh, cool. So, um, like I said, Mine Panzer was again. It's a, it's another Team Yankee like game. Russians are coming into West Germany, except he was doing it in 10 mil. And I wanted to get that because we've talked on this Sit Rep podcast a bunch of times about playing Team Yankee or Team Yankee like games uh-huh. in smaller scales. Yeah. And GHQ has been doing that since the 60s. GHQ is one of the oldest miniature games out there, uh, literally since the 1960s. When, when 1960 was modern, or near future. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they started, they actually, I mean, not, I don't know how many people might or may not know this. They didn't start in World War II. They started in moderns. Uh-huh. Like, oh, what was modern at the time? And then they realized that they had a winner on their hands, and they went into World War II, and then, you know, they just took off from there. Um, but he was doing it in 10 mils. So that was interesting. There were two big force on force tables there, uh, in 20 millimeter moderns. And when I say big, I mean big, there was one guy, his force on force table was easily six feet by 20 feet. Um, That's huge. Yeah, it was a huge table. Yeah. And then there was one we didn't quite get to. It was a 28 millimeter oil rig, which Ooh. we kept trying to get back to. But whenever we got there, he was either setting up or taking it down or you know, he was too busy to actually. Because, you know, these these guys are running, like, you know, participation games with sometimes up to 12 people. Yeah. But this but this oil derrick was easily three, three and a half feet off the table with little railings and, like, 28-millimeter guys. How big is an oil platform going to be? It's going to be big. Awesome. 
Very cool. But yeah, those were uh, some of the standout tables. Again, there's there's plenty more, but you know, I don't want to take over the whole podcast. Oh no, I mean this is our welcome back, and um, I'm gonna get. I have another guest that's gonna be joining us here in studio. I'm gonna get him set up. So I'm gonna jump off for a minute, Jim and Chris. If you want to kind of talk about what's you guys have been up to lately. Um, I will be right back as I get him set into uh, a chair, okay? So, Sounds great. All right, Jim, you drive it. Oh, man, back over to me. Uh, so, Chris, <laughs> nope, um, what's, what's, what's been going on with you? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Um, is, is, what's, what's, what's been going on with you, Chris? It's been a while since you've been on one of our episodes. Um, down to working two jobs now instead oh, okay. of four, you know. Four. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and unfortunately, I've had some deaths in my family, so... I'm very, very sorry to hear that. Yeah, so we've been uh, dealing with that, so... Yeah, so it's... But uh, I've been slowly uh, setting up a studio. I've got new cameras, new lights. Started doing a lot of content just before my niece passed away, Uh, but I'll be getting back to that this weekend, so probably tomorrow. But in uh, lots of printing, lots of 3D printing for scenery. And that's a, that's about it for me right now. Okay. So, like, 3D printing for scenery, you're talking about, like, terrain or uh, I, trees? I, I've been doing everything. Um, I've been printing uh, buildings uh, in 15 mil and 28. Um, I've been printing. Or play a couple turns of uh, the the Normandy version, Ultra Combat Normandy. We put some content on. on yeah, on, I've watched on, that. That was awesome. Um, yeah, but I have, yeah. I, I have not tried the modern one yet. Yeah, he. Uh, I've been sent a copy of the playtest rules, so I've been playtesting that with my son. Uh, so we've been making some new scenery. We're going to be uh, taking some pictures of our game tomorrow. So um, we'll be posting pictures of that as well. So, but uh, yeah, it's been fun playtesting that rule set. Um, I, I've we've played a couple of games of the Ultra Combat in Normandy, uh, but we set it. We set the storyline after World War II, but we're playing in Africa. So we, okay. we played a game where we had uh, um, a mercenary force with lots of World War II equipment. And it was so it was the 50s. And we had an African nation with leftover World War II equipment. So that's what it was all about. And like we did our Op Center episode. In fact, our very, very first Op Center episode was uh, the 56 Suez War. And yeah. that's all, all World War II. There was, a, there was, except for like a handful of AMX 13s, the entire side, the entire armies of both sides were all World War II. Most yeah, of British, a little bit of American, a little bit of Soviet, but all World War II. We played. Uh, we had one Stu- M5 Stuart 
on one side, some M3, um, what is it, the M3 armored cars, the, the white armored cars. We had a couple of those, some M5 half tracks. Had, uh, oh, we had one uh, M5 half track with a, a 75 millimeter gun on the back. Nice. Yeah. Like the, uh, the uh, T-19 variant, I think. Yes, that was it, yeah. Uh, that was the American self-propelled howitzer because we gave all of our M7 priests to the British. Yeah. So some of those batteries didn't get their correct guns until like way into Italy, like December of '43. Yeah. All right, uh, I'm back. Hey, I'm back. she's back. Okay. Hey, Chris, it's nice to hear your voice. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's good to hear all of you. <laughs> um, I'm again. We wanted to send our condolences to you and your family uh, on your unfortunate events that have happened recently. Our best wishes go out to you and your loved ones. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. So, in studio, I have a special guest. Um, so, once a year, we have a sabbatical uh, here at our uh, SITREP podcast headquarters. And the crew from Dust USA come and just chill out and do nothing but eat and swim and just relax. So, in the studio with me, I have Greg. Greg, you want to jump on and say hello to everybody? Hi, everyone. You guys hear him okay? I a little bit muted. A little soft. A little soft. Let me turn him up a little bit. Try it again there, Greg. Hi, everyone. Better? Still a little bit quiet. Still pretty soft. Okay. All right. It may be the mic we're working on, so I'm going to turn my mic towards him as well, and that should help uh, amplify. So Greg is the, what is your official title? <laughs> I'm the owner guru. and <laughs> yes, I'm the owner and manager of Dust USA. All right, so um, I brought Greg in the studio, obviously, because he's here relaxing, and I'm like, there's no way you can get away from work from an entire weekend. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit, you know, as we know, this podcast is anything post 1945 and beyond. And I thought we'd have a little bit of fun today because Dust technically, as of right now, takes place in 1947. So we found a loophole. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, split that hair a little hair. There you go. <laughs> so, but the interesting thing is, you know, and I don't know how much Greg can say at this point, but Dust is going to go beyond 1947 into later decades. Um, so, and we have been talking, and I know we've mentioned it before on this podcast, around Halloween time, we're going to take history and reality, if you will, and turn it on its head into you know, an appropriate genre during the Halloween time period. So weird World War II, pulp, you know, type stuff, because right now you have obviously Dust, uh, 1947. You have Black Sun, which is out right now. So, you know, we're definitely looking at that. And I'm trying to twist Greg's arm to be one that would come along and do a Dust Boot Camp weekend for Sitra here locally. So... We want to welcome Greg to the show, and uh, Greg, anytime, jump in in the conversation, okay? So, I'm sorry, so what were you guys saying about, um, so Chris, what have you been up to? I heard something about some tanks. Oh, I've been printing a lot of tanks. I've seen that. Yeah, and lots of trucks and jeeps and 
support vehicles. We've been playing, testing ultra modern combat for uh, for the guys at Radio Dish Dash. Uh, what else have we been doing? We've been printing 15 mil buildings for World War II. We've been printing 28 mil buildings for all kinds of different games. So we've been pretty busy. And I'm down to two jobs now, which is nice. Nice. Yeah. So how is the uh, yeah. how is the gameplay going for um, Ultra Combat Modern? We've 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 had minimal snags. There has been a couple things, and and we're working. Uh, everybody's working with Radio Dish Dash to kind of improve some a couple of things. Good spotting. Um, we had a discussion about spotting actually this week about uh, marking how to mark how you spot uh, yeah. units or uh, guys on the table. Um, we, we, had that, we, had, we had that conversation at Historicon with the yeah because uh, our game was obviously Ultra Combat Normandy yeah and it was like a little detachment it was a little detachment of the 709th running across some Ameri scattered American paratroopers and I understand the spotting rules. You know, the spotting rules themselves were fine, but the question I had was, okay, I have, say, you know, three fire teams. The Americans had, like, say, four fire teams. Okay, German fire team two has spotted German fire team three, but that doesn't mean everybody gets to see them. So now German fire team one has spotted American fire team four, and but American fire team four does not have the German spotted. They have German spotter team number three spotted, and... Before you know it, you almost seem like like you know a beautiful mind where you have like you know these crazy <laughs> diagrams across your table going, okay, who has who spotted? And uh, he was talking yeah. about tokens and counters. That's, or whatever a, that's the issue about. we're having right now. Yeah, it was not just like okay, in a lot of games, spotting is a binary state. A unit is either spotted or not spotted. But in which is a great mechanic, we just need to come up with a way to um, to record it easily. Whereas certain units have certain other units spotted but not others um so yeah that was the only again in a small game it wasn't that big a deal but i could see that if the game expanded you might run into some issues there nice so we've been discussing um a spot on their unit cards you know how they have the cards right oh yeah yep. we're talking about uh a, a section on for dry erase let's just say uh, for marking spotting. We also discussed markers. Like tomorrow's game, I'll be using some mar markers that I printed out and I've color coded them. Um, and we're going to use those for right now and see if that speeds things up. But like myself, I, I don't like a lot of markers out on the table. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, so we're, we're looking at towards the cards and using the cards. But we'll for now we're gonna use uh, markers and we're gonna see how that runs and then we're gonna try it on cards later. It almost sounds like you need a dry erase board just to say spotters. And they just keep track of who's spotting who. That's what uh, I think the guys at his uh, historic historicon. Uh huh. Didn't they use a, a whiteboard, Jim? Uh, I didn't see one, but I was only there for like, like half of one game. I which, think they ended up using one later on in the day. Half of one game, which we won, by the way. I just want to... You know, one of, the well, of course you did. You're part of Sitrep. We don't lose. Gosh darn it. Uh, it went, went, went. All respect to Drew. Drew won that game. Yeah. Kinda... Well, let me rephrase that. I win games in Sitrep. Right, Jen? 
So speaking of set rep, um, Chris, are you still working on some uh, tutorial videos for Spectre or Skirmish? You were Skirmish, right? I'm working on Skirmish, and I have now, I was just saying to Jim earlier, I've got the lights set up. Okay. I've got the cameras set up. I've got brand new cameras and lighting, and we're just working on some scenery to start filming uh, tutorial videos for Skirmish Sangin in the Ukraine. Nice, okay. That'll be awesome. Yeah. And I've been talking to Colin about that, so I've been keeping him in the loop, and he's been providing me with uh, um, information, and uh, I'm talking to him about uh, cards for special units. He's gonna do them up for me, so. I'll be with the, the funeral and everything last week. Um, we're going to get together this week to discuss uh, making the cards. Fantastic. Do the demo. Fantastic. All right. So, Jim, you got a new project that we'll be seeing shortly on the channel. Yes, a couple, actually. Um, so, Op Center Season 3 is, uh, is in the works. Um the first episode is written, recorded, edited, and mixed, and now I just have to do like the images and the storyboards for it. Um, we're hoping to have that out, the first episode of that out, shortly. Um, based on when other SITREP content is coming out, we're looking at maybe like the first week of August. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that season is definitely underway, and we're definitely starting on that one. So what's this one um, going to be about? I don't know if that's still classified or not. Oh. We may have to keep some people. Can you give them a decade? Uh, well, it's post-1945. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, okay, you know what? It's all, all seriousness. It's, it's, it's the 1960s. Okay. And we'll, um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Um, more immediately, speaking of the 1960s, uh, more immediately, um, actually, it should be up by the time this podcast goes out. By the time of this recording, we're doing it tomorrow. We're going back to Air War C-21. Nice. And we're doing it over uh, the skies, jet combat over uh, the skies over North Vietnam. So we'll have either some either some F-4 Wild Weasels or um, Marine Corps slash U.S. Navy F-4s uh, mixing it up with some MiG-17s over uh, over North Vietnam. Um we had, uh, you know, part of the whole, you know, the Rolling Thunder campaign in 66, 67, 68. Um, what kind of inspired me was at a Historicon that was at the table that had, you know, F-105 Thunder Chiefs, F-4 Phantoms, um, mixing up with, again, the most common Vietnamese fighter in that war was the MiG-17. Uh, some, some 21s came in near the very end, you know, like the Easter Offensive in, in 75. But uh, it was mostly 17s. Uh, they had a nice little, uh, they had a nice little dogfight going there. Um, Check your six was the was the system. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I saw the whole system. Yeah, they were they were they were having some fun with it. That's for sure. Um, we didn't get any video of it, but we, I did manage to grab uh, some photo essays and whatever, some photo uh, galleries and put them up. Um, the miniatures look great. Um, it was neat seeing um, the dull matte, very dark green camouflage pattern of the NV or North Vietnamese Air Force or whatever you want to call it, People's Air Force of Vietnam was using, uh, again, for a lot of their MiG-17s. And especially when you take that dark green and you splash it against the 
very large and very bright red uh, wing insignia. Uh, so the MiG-17s definitely looked awesome. But then on the other side, you had almost a similar color scheme with the F-105, you know, thuds, uh-huh. you know, the Thunder Chiefs. But then you had these dazzling white and uh, silver. Um, I guess they were supposed to be Navy planes, you know, uh, F-4 Phantoms and whatever. Yeah. You see the Air Force. You see the Air Force and the Army had like some sort of green or camouflage, and the Marines and Navy would have, uh, you know, for their carrier-based, you know, strikes for Rolling Thunder had like that very bright white or light gray, mm-hmm. almost a silver kind of kind of a look to it. So yeah, it definitely looked great on the table. That's for sure. Awesome. That is really cool. So, um, are you going to quote some Top Gun lines while you're doing that? You know, uh, you talked. You know, when they were talking about the air-to-air combat kill ratio from World War Two to Korea, then to Vietnam. You know, they went from thirty to one down to five to one, and that's why Top Gun was created and all that stuff. They definitely do have that reflected in the game. Do that. And uh, well, we your F four suddenly don't have guns, and anyone, everyone who's watched any of our Falklands content. Yeah. Um, knows that the Air War C-21 games we had in our Falklands um, season was like, man, those, you know, especially for the Argentinians, guns are the only way you can win. Yeah. Your missiles are terrible. Uh, you have to win with guns. And now the Americans are going without without guns. Um, now, the F, they did develop gun pods. Very quickly, they realized, wow, we didn't build the F-4 Phantom with guns. We were too reliant on missiles. Uh, so they very, very quickly got the idea of quick fix in the field. You know how it goes. Um, we're going to strap some gun, external gun pods, you know, 25 millimeter, 20 millimeter, 30 millimeter gun pods, under you know the fuselage and wings of these um, of these Phantoms. The problem is Air War C21 does have rules where your your turning and your acceleration and your deceleration, all, basically all your flight characteristics, really get cut down when you start putting external ordnance onto a plane. Mm-hmm. Where it's like you really have to make that decision. You read about all the time. We just got bounced by a bunch of fighters on our way on a bombing mission, dump the ordnance in the ocean and find it out. Because you can't get in a dogfight with... And as it is, the F-4 Phantom, I've heard this joke a bunch of times, the proof that if you put enough thrust behind a brick, a brick will fly. Right. Um, <laughs> so you are already, you're already handling like a school bus, and now you've got gun pods on, and you're up against MiG-17s, which were some of the most movable jets, you know, developed until the late 1980s. Um, you know, they're not great, but they're definitely maneuverable. So the, I, I'm anticipating that game is tomorrow. We're going to go ahead and twitch that live um, uh, for, for SITREP. And uh, we might have some edited, uh, you know, um, videos, excerpts, and highlights uh, up on YouTube, hopefully during the coming week. Um, again, this will probably all be in the past by the time this, this podcast comes out. Um, yeah, we're going to see how it goes. It's going to be electronics and uh, firepower versus maneuverability. Because the numbers, because obviously the North Vietnamese are going to have the big, uh, the big edge in those in those categories. Excellent. So, um, just a quick catch up for me. Um, I got Day of Heroes, which is a lock and load tactical system game. It's based on Mogadishu, so I'll be doing some play on that. Uh, I'm still working on Arma 3. I have uh, my friend who's in computers who's going to build us a server so we can have a dedicated server to that. Um, So I'm working on a new unit for Arma 3. It's it's the uh, 3-2 ODA of the 12th Special Forces Group. 
Um, the 12th Special Forces Group was a real SF group. It was an Army Reserve group that uh, no longer exists. It was uh, deactivated back in the mid-90s, I want to say. Um, so I'm building the uniforms and equipment for that, and it will be a 12-man uh, team. And so we'll have slots for 12 people to play. So um, doing that. And then um, I'm also diving into uh, DCS World. I was playing a Tomcat. Uh, I think, Jim, you popped in late on one of those um, when I was yep. trying it out. And um, in typical fashion, I flew it so damn hard I ripped the wings off. So. <laughs> VMAX succeeded. <laughs> So, yeah, so I'm like, what the hell? It's not easy. And the, the amount of realism in that game is incredible because you can take it from a, a cold start and go through the whole pre-flight and, you know, get everything going. Um, I quickly realized this is a really great game for VR. You know, if you have uh, Oculus or something so you can manipulate the controls, you know, with your hands because trying to do it with a mouse and joystick is a little hard, but... Uh, it, the realism in it is uh, pretty remarkable. And, of course, they have mods, so, you know, I'm looking to do um, either Libya. Um, you know, if you remember Libya when we splashed a couple guys back back in the day, so... Ronald Reagan years? Yes. Oh, not cross my line of death. Yes, and then uh, Ronnie Reagan said, uh-uh, and uh, took care of him, so... Um, and then um, I'm definitely going to be doing some Spectre stuff. Um, I've got that nice display table downstairs, um, so I'll be working on that. And then, um, you know, I play this little game called Dust with my little gaming group. It's all my former high school Army buddies. We play Dust and some other things. And Greg's here with us. And Craig, why don't you tell us what's new with Dust? Um... <laughs> uh plenty uh how can i say that uh we are releasing new armies we recently released the japanese imperial navy nice uh so it's a brand new army a brand new block uh a little bit more modern in the appearance uh, because it's obviously uh, late war and after war uh, japan uh, all the walkers are inspired by the submarines that japan had and uh, and the ships, so it's actually it, it really looks good. Well, I'm really happy with that. Uh, player seems to be happy with it too. Nice. Now the Japanese, what is their unique weapon? You know, like everybody has like a Tesla and phasers. What is Japan's unique weapon? The railgun. Of course, Japan <laughs> gets a railgun. Yeah, so, <laughs> which is a a funny story actually because the railgun was invented by the Italians. Uh, but uh, part of the Axis, they were already working on it, actually. Uh, and Japan basically stole the technology. Ah. So, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's a very interesting weapon. Because, I, I mean, from what I know about us, a lot of the walkers for other factions were based on tanks. Yes. I was like, oh, man, Japanese tanks in World War Two were just the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that's exactly what Bauer said. <laughs> they were. They were even worse than the Italians. They, 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 their military doctrine in the late 30s, the only war they were really expecting was to continue to fight in China. And China had no tanks. So for them, tanks were just never that big of a, of a priority. Yeah. Um, they tried to fix it during the war. They never got around to it. But Japanese submarines were huge. 
yep. the I-400 class. Japanese, I don't know if you knew this, uh, Gene. Japanese had a class of submarines that were designed to reach the coast of the United States. And unlike a lot of these Axis super weapons you hear about, the Japanese actually did build these and use them in combat. And the I-400s were so big, this uh, World War II submarine could launch a seaplane. Yeah, two of them, actually, I think. Wasn't it two? Yeah, it, it, I can't remember. I just remember, you know, it had, like, a little hangar bay inside a submarine. You know, it's it's funny you say that because um, I just watched a program not too long ago. Um, or was it a book I read? I don't remember. But it was a story I read, or it was a program. Where there was one sunk off the coast of Washington, Oregon. And they... Uh, Oh, you know what? I take it back. It wasn't a program. It was a book I was reading. It was one of the Dirk Pitt novels uh, from Clive Klusler. They t he he t uh, talked about that submarine in in, um, in the book uh, that it supposedly sank off the coast of like Washington, Oregon, and they dove on it. And, you know, and it, they got into the hangar bay with the plane in it. You know, and I was like, I didn't know it really exists. I thought it was just um, you know part of the story. So that's interesting. It, it was definitely a class of the Japanese submarines. I don't think they had very many of them. It may have just been a handful, but they, yeah, it, it was a thing. Did it actually ever see combat, though? Um, I don't know if it ever... Transporting. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was used. It was definitely used. Yeah, there are some reports of the, of the use of the catapult submarines. I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, there are some reports of the use of submarines that had, that had this wheel of catapults to launch planes. During the war, so yeah. by Japan. Awesome. Yeah, those are the I 400s. I don't know if they yep. ever attacked anybody or sank anybody, but they were a real, you know, not like, you know, like a lot of stuff you read about in, you know, you see some guy on YouTube or whatever, you know, it's like the Germans had this, the Germans had that, the Germans had plans for this. Well, if you consider plans, it's three o'clock in the morning, and you know one of Hitler's guys doodled this on a cocktail napkin. Okay, yeah, there are a lot. <laughs> That's literally as far as a lot of that stuff got. But the Japanese really did build those I-400s. Absolutely. So I looked. So I looked it up. They were actually built specifically for one mission. Really? That mission was to attack the Panama Canal. Okay. Yeah, but they used them for transport purposes quite a bit. And at least one of them was sent to Germany, and it had picked up uh, different kinds of equipment and brought it back to Japan. That's where a lot of that rocket, the rockets they got, uh -huh. the V1s, V2s towards the end, that's where they got that. They brought it back in one of those submarines. Yeah, the, the uh, Japanese um, took pretty much the idea of the German uh, shutter rocket or whatever you want to call it, technology, that they had in the V1. But for the Germans, it was a, you know, a gyroscope-stabilized kind of a cruise missile. The Japanese put a pilot in that. Yeah. They were like, okay. here you go. Here's your, here's your cup of sake. Go find an American carrier. And uh, you see a lot of that in Okinawa and, you know, the, the last hundred days run up to the very end of the war. Hmm. So that leads me to a question, Greg. Are we going to see kamikaze pilots or some kind of troops in the Japanese army in dust? We have talk of that. Uh, I haven't seen any concept yet. Okay. But I, I, considering we're late war, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Interesting. So, speaking of late war, let's say dust continues on past 1947, which we all know it probably will. Where, do we, where does dust go next after post-World War II? Are we going to see a Korean version? 
So it's, he's over here going, <laughs> shit, stop talking, stop talking. <laughs> no, no, the, 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 because of the, of the uchrony of dust, uh, obviously the, the timeline changes significantly. Um, so in the 60s, for example, we have a dust 1963. Uh, and then we have a dust 1984 actually uh, and both dates are supposed to mirror what's what was happening in the real world uh, but obviously with a twist uh, in 1963 it's the beginning of the exploration of space for for the the armies of earth basically uh, the real the the aliens that started it all um, went came back basically and started to lay waste and devastation everywhere and uh, the the population of earth is now in contact with the technology that they had no idea could exist uh, for example for the real uh, walkers are a technology of the past it's it's dated. It doesn't work. It's too slow. So now they are using actu actually anti-grav technology. Hmm. So they obviously they have shuttles and and sh and spaceships and this kind of thing. So the contact of this brand new technology that has been obviously uh, rendered better by the Vril in the in the centuries that they had uh, makes the space exploration possible. So that's the that's the space program. That's NASA. That's these kind of things. Nice. Uh, Very cool. But and then 1984. It's really it's Star Wars basically. Uh, the war is not even on Earth only. It's everywhere, uh, and it's in space. So the 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 story becomes more than global. It becomes universal. So. Uh, <laughs> You were telling me a little bit about it. So it's like the battlefields move off of Earth for the most part because one country takes over the planet essentially, and they have to move. And so no, no, that that is a, another project oh, okay. uh, for the moment, uh, okay. which is called Monochrome Red, uh, which is a, a new game that we are releasing soon. Um, there's a trademark on the word soon. <laughs> but uh, it's really uh, th th this game is really different you are in a not so far future from now and the earth has been completely uh, colonized by China who won this third world war basically and uh, the only uh, people that managed to fight against the, the, the invasion from China are the mega corporations and they decided to basically leave Earth, uh, leave Earth to China and say, uh, you know what, the hell with it, we're going elsewhere. And they take their spaceships and they go to the moon and to Mars that they have colonized already several years ago. Nice. And so that's, a, that's the reason why the name, is, uh, the name of the game is Monochrome Red. It's because you are fighting China on Earth, which is red, and you have Mars that is red. So, very cool. And will it be um, same scale as current dust? No, it's it's actually way smaller. It's going to be one one forty fourth. Oh wow! So nice. so nice. very tiny scale. Uh, modern modern weaponry, uh, very modern, uh, futuristic sometimes. Uh, uh, very small scale, self-contained uh, for two to four players. It's really a different kind of game. Uh, it's going to play on hexagons. Mm -hmm. uh, there you go, hex. Nice! <laughs> nice! Nice! 
<laughs> because it's easier at that scale and that allows for more for for simpler movements and calculations of distances and these kind of things, uh, which is a big credo of of our company already. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's really a fast-paced, uh, super destructive game, a system that is close to the one of dust. So uh, dice recursion, uh, cards uh, for the profiles, these kind of things. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's promising so far. Sounds good. I'm I'm in. When you when do you need beta testers? I'm in. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm gonna ask Olivier actually when he's gonna start that. So excellent. I believe you need so, an yeah. X expert for that one. I, it sounds like you do need yeah. an X expert. Go, go. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that setting sounds chillingly, uh, uh, chillingly likely, chillingly plausible. Yeah, the whole, the whole it world is coming down to China and the corporations. Uh, <laughs> I call that a scenario next Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> next Wednesday. <laughs> it's exactly that. Yeah, it's kind of scary that we're kind of that close. <sighs> but hey, you know, that's really exciting. And, and to be in ten mil, that you know, more realistic ranges. Um, you know, especially when you're getting to bigger weapons. Um, I, yeah, I'm always a fan of the micro uh, scales, you know, 6 mil, 10 mil. Uh, so I, I love them too, but... Going 10 mil this next year. Are you? Yeah, North Hag has me going 10 mil. Oh, yeah, did you, you know, I was going to say, we, you know, there's a few things to talk about, but... Uh, Greg, why don't you tell people who aren't familiar with Dust in its current format, how do you play Dust? You know, give us the elevator pitch. A brand new person, how do you get them into the game? What draws people into dust? Wow. Um, <laughs> the fact that the miniatures are awesome. Uh -huh. um, but, but also the, the game system is really... Re it relies on one short sentence. We are old, we are tired, and we work all day, and we want a game that we can put on a kitchen table at the end of the day and play with. Nice. So it's really that. Uh, you want a game that gives you some strategy, some give you some possibilities, but you really want this game to not clutter you with details that you don't need, uh, either because you already have excellent games that already do it, or because it's absolutely not your kind of game. Uh, and there's a fringe of population that is not familiar with miniature gaming mm -hmm. uh, because of this uh, barrier of complex rules and a lot of reading and this kind of things and our game is right now in a very nice place for that because you you have obviously rules to read and this kind of things but you can really layer the game the way you want it can be your very appetizer game or it can be something rich complex with a campaign system with weather with terrain with special rules and this kind of things very nice very nice. It is a fun game. It's easy to get into. Um, the miniatures come in uh, two different sets right now, primed. Yep. So all the miniatures come primed. Um, or you can go up to premium, and they're pre-painted. And the pre-paints are actually really nice. You know, it's not like somebody just slaps on a color here and a splash of here. <laughs> they actually take their time on them. Um, I, I'm quite impressed. You know, if you're one of those people that is um, short on time, uh, has a little bit of extra money because it does obviously cost a little bit more because you do have people hand painting these things. You know, it's not a machine; it's they're hand painted. It's right? hand painted by twelve painters. So, 
Um, <laughs> it, it's really nice. Um, and you can get on, it's a grid-based system. Um, you know, so you're using grid. And I, I came from the old school of Dust Warfare, so open play. Mm -hmm. And then Greg convinced me to try Dust 47 in its current, you know, with the grid. I'm like, ah, oh, it's grid, you know, da da da. But it actually plays really well. And yeah. uh, movements, flows, the, the, I mean, there's, it's almost like taking hex base and obviously making it into a bigger grid. You know, you've got, you can move this way, you've got, uh, points in each grid that that's you how you measure and aim for and then line of sight and everything so it pretty much takes all that ambiguity out of the game yep. and makes it very streamlined and fast play and it still allows you to play with 3d there's, yeah. there's never a four up in a hex or a grid game yeah that's the thing that takes up there's never a four there's never like oh well i don't know you know what let's four up it you never see that in, in hex games or grid games yeah yeah i'm sorry chris what were you gonna say I, I've been playing Dust since it began. Yeah. We've got a lot of Dust. We've got a lot of Dust. Good. Every, everything is it. still playable. So. It's the Cthulhu faction. The Mythos? Mythos. He saw those and he was just like, I need those now. No. Yeah, so let me tell you about the Mythos. They, they're a <laughs> son of a bitch to play against. Uh, so, was it last year, Greg? I think it was last year. We yeah, uh, There was a small convention here in, uh, outside of Chicago called Polar Vortex. And they had a very uh, small, intimate dust tournament. Um, you know, and Greg was coming up to su support it because... Uh, Greg and his wife, Alicia, are extremely involved in the community here in the United States. They travel all over the country to support game stores and small conventions, you know, and um, so they came up to do this one. And Greg goes, let's do a game, Dust USA versus Beast of War. Okay, fine. So um, I put together, Jim, you'll like this, I put together a USMC uh, uh, group. That, that was, was your first correct move. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, we played, what was it, 100 points? 100 points, yeah. 100 points. I had a ton of uh, units on the table because, you know, a lot of it was infantry, so it's lower cost point-wise. And I still had three walkers, I want to say, yep. on the table as well. Here comes Greg with the brand-new, not-even-released Mythos set. It was three monsters and one mercenary squad, I think it was. Yeah, at that time, yeah. Yeah, so you could hold an objective. Yeah. So I had these, you know, big walkers, um, you know, and one of his first moves, I'm like, I got this walker, I'm going to take out this monster, right? His first move, the freaking monster flies, lands in there, and rips my turret off the tank. Like, it was butter. So... I'm like, well, this is going to suck. So, We're off to a great start. Yeah, I was off to a great start. But I actually won it in the end. It, but the only reason I won it is I had more units on the table. That's truly the no, only reason No, no, no. That's not, that's not the only reason. Uh, Jenna played extremely well that day. Uh, there was no, not even a dice pick to justify any, you know, exploit or anything. It was really a good game. Uh, and she had an army that was extremely well done, uh, very uh, able to deal with any threats, even the heavy monsters that I had. Uh, obviously, my infantry unit got like pulverized extremely fast so that I couldn't take the objective anymore. So after that, I could play for the draw or the defeat, and she didn't let me have a draw. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like so no, it, it was. It, 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
No, no, tell, tell me, tell me. Um, yeah, Gianna is, uh, she picks up games very, very quickly. Uh, that, that Valorant Victory game. I think that, that was your first game of Valorant Victory, right? Gianna? Yeah, it was. Special Forces? Yeah. And that wasn't like a soft pitch game. I wasn't like throwing the game to let her win on camera or whatever. I mean, and, and you know, she won by one point, but she did win. Absolutely. Yeah, she has a she has a good understanding of game systems, and she has a very acute sense of strategy. So, it's it's really it's it was really a good game. It's it's an excellent memory for me. So, and we had a blast. Yes. I, mean, I, I was laughing all along, but but really, we also I was also sweating. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> now, if you guys have not played yeah. Dust, go ahead, Chris. I, I was just saying I, I like the new grid format. I've actually now played two games with a, a grid format and I'm thinking about ordering a mat for both Dust and uh, To the Strongest and uh, I, I enjoy it. It's it's fun. I come home, I only got a couple hours, I throw down and we play a game real quick. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's definitely it's exactly one of those games that. you can, you know, um, my two best friends, they came to Adepticon uh, this year just to check it out because they've never been you know and they're not big gamers we used to do some D&D &D and stuff but no, they're not big war gamers and uh, I took them over introduced them to Greg and uh, they looked around you know and they're both uh, either just retired from the army or going to be retiring soon there one's a sergeant major one was first sergeant um, and they both picked up starter sets Loved it. We we now play, you know, at least once a month we try to get together when the schedules allow. And it's so easy because we played, we started at 5 o'clock one night and we were done by 9, you know. And that's with us stupid being stupid and, you know, BSing each other and busting chops and doing the stupid stuff that we usually do. But gameplay's smooth. It's easy to understand. It's fun to play. You know, and it's like, that's grid. I, you know, because like I said, you know, Chris, and you're probably the same way at least at one point. You know, it felt like it, my initial thought was, are you going to be restricted because you're on a grid base instead of free movement, yeah. like in warfare? And but no, it, it, you don't feel that way at all. You really don't. And uh, for you guys out there, I would definitely have to give it a shot. Um, they there are starter armies and starter sets that you can, you know, and they do come with a, a mat in it for each starter army, right? Um, so, and it's a really nice neoprene quality mat. So. Uh, I highly recommend the game. It's a lot of fun, and I have a ton of dust stuff. So uh, we play a lot. Um, even Dawn plays it. She plays those freaking communist SSU people. Uh, which, <laughs> oh, oh, my God, they're the worst. Those freaking uh, battle suits. I love my helicopters. Yeah, and they have helicopters. How do the Russians get helicopters? You know, um, I know, I know, Skorsky, I know, I know. <laughs> Gosh darn it! But uh, uh, two quick, please. go ahead, Jim. <laughs> I was gonna say two, two very quick things. Um, uh, Chris, uh, I didn't know you, you played uh, to the strongest. We had a to the strongest table at Historicon. They were doing the Battle of Magnesia. We had some some photo essays of that up there. Oh. Uh, we. We wanted to shoot, oh, yeah, gorgeous, like six mil, or I can't remember if it was six or ten, but I think it was ten. But uh, yeah, he had like a, almost a thousand miniatures on the table. Um, we were trying to get some video with him, but again, he had like eight players. He was super busy. 
And uh, as far as, you know, again, this is, you know, a risk me the hex guy. <laughs> as far as, you know, grid games or whatever, and oh, you know, sometimes, I know you guys have come around, but there's a lot of people out there that are like, oh, I don't want to play a grid game or a hex game or especially a grid game. Uh, um, because, you know, it's not immersive, it's not how real combat is. Uh, excuse me, have you seen a military map? Yeah. Yeah. You find out military maps. There are nothing but grids. Yeah. Real war is fought on a grid map. I get, you know, when you do it on a one to one scale, you're doing it on a grid map. So just food for thought. Yeah, that's very true. I never thought of it that way because, you know, when we're calling in support, where are you calling in? Your grid. So. You know, or land nav, yeah. or trying to get to the next waypoint, or any kind of patrol, it's always on a grid map. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a good point, Jim. I never thought of that. Well, excellent. Uh, Greg, so when you're not playing Dust, what do you play? Oh, lately, not not much, to be honest, <laughs> uh, because I, I, I really don't have time. We spend our weekends uh, traveling all around, uh, so it eats up a lot of time. I play some RPGs. Uh, mainly with my kids, I introduce them to that. Yeah, uh, uh, they also they also play Dust with me, so it makes it easy. Nice. Uh, but yeah, we we play that. Um, I my retirement project is to play uh, the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, I want to recreate the battles, so so that's that's really my retirement project. Excellent. All right, Chris, let's talk some news. You want to talk about North Hag? Yes. Uh, so it has been announced. Still no release date uh, that I've seen yet. But uh, Plastic Soldier Company will be releasing it. It will be starting in the 80s, mid-80s, I believe, 84. Um, and will be they will be releasing Plastic 10 mil modern for this this project and i can understand why they've gone with the 10 mil it's like what jim and i've said it just scales better it doesn't your your table does not look like a parking lot yeah <laughs> yeah so 10 mil it's still recognizable what it is the details still there and it just looks more epic on the table right so um Pierce uh, has been posting lots of pictures of, because he's been painting a lot of 10 mil stuff, because I guess he's got uh, some of the pre-release stuff, and he's been painting that stuff up, and uh, he's been showing off a lot of the Soviet stuff. Um, it looks really good. Is he and still involved in um, Battle Group? I thought he was stepping away. Um, as far as I know, he's still doing some stuff with work. Okay. Uh, I think he's still doing a lot of the photographing. Okay. For books and stuff. The, the thing with uh, Battle Group is that it's two different companies. There's Plastic Soldier Company and Iron Fist Publishing. Yes. Yeah. And that, at least for me and some of the people on Beast of War, that relationship has never been made entirely clear. Oh, gotcha. I exactly. I don't know exactly it, it, where the overlap yeah, is. It's kind of, we don't know. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so there's that um, coming out. What else is... I've seen a few different new rule sets. That, yeah, they're... Uh, you know, I'm trying to... Add, I don't want to screw up the recording because I was trying to access Facebook because there's another set of rule set that came out, and I happened to mention something on the post. I said, you know, 
I would definitely want to get our hands on that for a review. And they're like, as soon as we get it printed, we'll send it to you. So I'm waiting on it. And I'm, I apologize. I will post it when I remember it, um, the company. Um, but the yeah, was, yeah, was it was it was it the same guys that just did the gladiatorial game? It may have been. Yes. Oh my god, I can't believe I forgot. So, but the, yeah, we'll get it posted up. Um, and then, so you're working on Ultra Combat Modern, so um, that'll be cool. Also, also got something else to announce. Oh, you know, three months time there will be ultra uh, modern combat in africa uh for well we'll be running a campaign my local group uh-huh um i've already talked to colin about this we're gonna use his africa book from skirmish sangan nice country and the made up countries that are in that book yep but we're gonna set it a little bit earlier uh-huh uh in the so it'll be like a 70s, 80s time period. Okay. So we're still going to see some World War II equipment, probably a fair amount, actually. Yeah. Um, and you're going to see some smattering of some more modern equipment. So we're going to see already... something like Rhodesia? Yes, we are, because I've already started the miniatures. I'm working on a tutorial video on cavalry right now. Uh, so I'll be using the new contrast paints, so it'll be... Uh, a kind of a combination. I've, I've done a video on camo, but it didn't work out quite right. Okay. So I promised everybody a new camo um, video with contrast paints, and I'll be doing horses as well at the same time. Um, and I've done a whole bunch of conversions of World War II miniatures uh, that I'll be showing pretty soon. And I've got given a lot of the infantry SLRs, so FNs. Uh-huh that I've 3D printed, and um, we'll be giving some of the the, um, the World War II miniatures um, some modern weapons mixed in with their World War II. Interesting. So that'll be, there'll be, I think there's four of us playing in that campaign right at the moment, but we have possible of a fifth member. So we'll have four to five countries. Um, we'll be playing in 28 mil, mostly. Um, there might be some hex encounter games. Uh huh. We're talking about that right now. Except um, with the uh, the maps you were asking me about on YouTube. Yes. Yeah, we're in discussions about that right now. So, because we want to play on a on a larger scale, country wise. So we've been discussing going with uh, some hex encounter games. Fantastic. So it's gonna be a busy what's left of the year for me. Yeah, it sounds like it. Definitely sounds like it. Jim, you got any future projects other than Op Center? Any gaming wise? Uh, Op Center. Um, let me think. Here. Yeah, Op Center, obviously. Um, again, we're gonna be twitching Air War C21 North Vietnam coming up. Uh huh. Um, and the only other immediate gaming project on the table at the moment, um, I've talked about this a couple of times. We're f now that Historicon is out of the way, and there's like one or two more things I want to talk about in Historicon. But before we get to that, there are now that Historicon's finally like behind me, um, I finally managed to circle back with my friend uh, Piotr from Poland, uh -huh. and we are uh, gearing up big time for Valor and Victory and Panzer Leader 
in 80th anniversary recreations of German invasion of Poland. Oh. So, yeah, we're done with, or we're mo mostly done with the 75th cycle, so to speak. Like, yeah. we just did 75th of Normandy. But someone's going to do 75th of the Battle of the Bulge, I'm sure, coming up at Christmas. Um, it probably won't be me, because I've already done the 70th. But somebody's going to do it, and that's, you know, that's great. But what Piotr and I are doing is we're kind of getting a jump on it, uh -huh. and we're starting the 80s. So September 1st, 2019, marks the 80th anniversary of the official... Not necessarily correct, but the official start of World War II um, with uh, Germany's invasion of Poland. So we're making up, uh, I've got two operational scale games for, uh, I bought at Historicon, and um, I'm building counters and map sheets for Panzer Leader, Polish, and early war German, very early war German, obviously, and uh, also for um, Valorant Victory for our more small scale infantry heavy games. You know, Panzer Leader is mostly, you know, battalion battalion level game in Panzer Leader with, where both sides have a full battalion, six to eight hundred men. You can play that in 45 minutes. It's super fast. It's kind of like a tutorial or a scrimmage game, like a quick pickup game. Usually at Panzer Leader, you're doing at least regiment. If not brigade, and if you feel brave, you can put a full division on the table. Yeah. And do it, you know, the right way. Um, I don't know if we'll get that big, but, um, because, again, Polish tanks and, uh, you know, mechanized infantry or whatever are, are you know, kind of rare on the ground. But, uh, yeah, well, we're building the armies for it. And, um, you know, we hope to have uh, – there'll be a lot of gaming for that in August uh, to kind of start presenting to people uh, at the very beginning of September. Nice. Very cool. Um, you know, Jim, in your spare time, yep. um, you know, just when you have a minute or two, if you could put together an uh, Operation Market Garden – uh, I'd be happy to play on the anniversary of that coming up in September. No okay. pressure or anything. Right. No pressure. I'll, 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 just talk, I'll just talk to my clone that lives in a parallel universe. <laughs> There's always room. You set the sidestep into another dimension. Uh, no, that's actually, we, we, like, that's, that's another one that we've done before. Uh, uh, there are, in fact, games for or, uh, scenarios in the original Panzer Leader box set, or several of them. Uh, for um, for Panzer Leader and uh, my brother um, Amphibious Monster on the site used to do a lot of Panzer Leader for uh, for Market Garden. That was his thing. The initial 30 core breakthrough. We didn't do too much of the airborne stuff. Uh -huh. There is an air airborne variant for Panzer Leader, and it's one thing that I don't know. Maybe you and I G want to try one of these days uh, called Para Leader, which really gets pretty involved. It's um, you have a map and you have to like plot out where your guys are all going to land. And then you see where the wind really takes you, and your all of your platoons. Well, you see how a pendulator game looks. Yeah. All of those platoons break up into their constituent sticks, so you're almost playing pendulator on a squad level. Oh no, kidding! Obviously, you don't do this with a very big game. Well, your 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 paratroopers get scattered to the wind. Yeah. And yeah. only as they combine, like three sticks will combine into an actual platoon, and when those three sticks get together into one hex, you take the sticks off. And you put it, you replace it with the original intended, you know, paratrooper platoon. And those units are freaking powerful. They have ridiculous defense because of their training. They have ridiculous attack because they load them all with SMGs and BARs and everything else. Uh -huh. Satchel charge. They, they get all the combat engineer abilities because it's all their demolition kit or whatever. You know, so well, not to get into the rules of Panzer Leader, but they, be, they become really, really powerful. But they only unlock all those special abilities once they manage to rejoin into a full platoon. And this kind of abstractly... Um, and the same thing with, with, with British paratroopers. And the reason for that rule is they're kind of abstractly... Uh, um, 
reflecting, you know, not only do the squads have to get together, but you have to find those canisters that they've dropped yeah. that have all those heavier weapons in them or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, you find those, you open them up, that's where you actually unlock some of your special abilities. Your satchel charges, your bazookas, your, you know. And um, it wasn't that big of a deal in Normandy, believe it or not, because they're dropping on some pretty terrible German units, you know, 709th and so on. Mm-hmm. But in Market Garden, you're dropping on two SS Panzer Divisions in daylight. So pack a lunch. Because <laughs> you hit the ground, you've got a man's job ahead of you. It's, yeah. You're up against it. Uh, um, but yeah, there's all that. Uh, my brother Ben used to do the assault on, uh, oh, what was the name of the bridge? Um, the one that Robert Redford did in the movie, where he has to actually cross the bridge or cross the river further downstream. And then what they do is they try to assault the bridge from two directions at yep. once. Yeah, Nijmegen. Um, I think it, was, it yeah. was definitely. Yeah, it was definitely that river. It was either Nijmegen or right outside of Nijmegen. The name of the bridge I think is different, but it was right in that area. Yeah. Yes. Let's just call it Nijmegen. Yeah, yeah he did. Uh, that Nijmegen run was this last week. Yeah, it was. Okay. And uh, you know the captain. I'm trying to remember his name, but uh, the actual captain that Robert Redford played in the movie just passed away not too long ago, um, within the last month. So uh, I just saw it in the news. But uh, yeah, I mean that really happened. I mean they didn't embellish that really in the movie. That's pretty much how it actually happened. Um, you know, you I've read his story and he actually did his hail marys and everything as they were crossing. So. Uh, they, he said it was pretty realistic to how it really was. You know, obviously they dramatized it a little bit for the movie, but um, he said it was pretty close. So, yeah, originally I was supposed to go over and do the anniversary parachute jump, but it's just not going to happen. I've never got it coordinated in time, so I guess I'll have to live through a, a game, I guess. So, there's a slight, maybe 10% to 50% chance. I mean, I've done my mid-year trip to, to Pennsylvania, obviously, of heading over to uh, southern Belgium around uh, not like in sometime in December. I don't want it to get too much to Christmas because I don't want to spend like my life savings on it uh-huh. for the uh, 75th of the Bulge. Oh, nice. That, that might be, uh, I mean, it's like five, five months away, but uh, again, it's like 15% chance, but we are, we are investigating the possibility. I did the 70th of uh, D-Day, um, almost five years ago now, and that was that was a pretty powerful trip um, in 2014. So maybe for 2019, I might do the 75th of the Bulge. We'll see how that works out. Fantastic! That would be cool. That's Excellent. amazing. Yeah. So, all right. Um, I I'm trying to scroll through Facebook, and I feel like such a knucklehead. I cannot find the name of that rule set that I've been talking to the people about. Um, other quick things, like I said, I'm going to talk to Greg about doing a boot camp uh, around Halloween-ish time uh, for Dust, you know, part of our weird war postmodern stuff. And then um, also somebody else reached out to me about doing a boot camp. Um, who was it now? I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm totally just not with it this morning. Um, well, if, if you're still looking for that... Um, yeah, go ahead. Super fast. One last thing from Historicon. Um, well, super fast, two things. Number one, huge shout-out to uh, my new friends Marvin and Jamie Veter. This isn't really modern, but they, they ran a Freeman's Farm American Revolution game that was absolutely off the, off the hook, or whatever oh, the yeah. kids were saying these days. It was insane, man. That was... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> he like would, would announce the the order face with an actual bugle without yes yeah. <laughs> yeah, people at other at other tables really appreciated that, but we were having fun. Oh, fantastic. Um, Oh yeah, it was a, it was an awesome game, but uh, you know to to kind of stick to moderns, um, it's it's not going to be like the most dazzling piece of content that we put up for Historicon over on on tabletop, but if you're serious and and you're you know you want to look at modern combat and you want to look at modern gaming, or you know modern combat in a, yeah. in a really you know realistic sense. Uh, I was very fortunate to uh, attend the seminar and afterwards get some time. I didn't get it on camera, unfortunately. This was a thing, but. Um, I was trying to get uh, some time after the seminar with uh, two American Army colonels that were giving a seminar there. That's Colonels Pappel, uh, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, and uh, Hatcher. So Pappel commanded 168th Armored Battalion at Satter City in uh, 2008 during the, the fighting that took place in the early part of that year. And Hatcher was a 64th Brigade's uh, support battalion. So, I mean, we always, I mean, first of all, you know, a lot of us, even on this podcast are, you know, obviously veterans and we talk to veterans all the time. These guys weren't just veterans. These were the actual battalion and regimental commanders who ran that battle. Um, and they were actually there at Historicon. I was actually really uh, kind of surprised because, you know, you, you talk to guys like that and you're like, you know, they kind of do, they kind of laugh at us, you know, yeah. you're playing little toy soldiers or whatever, but they were super professional, super respectful or whatever. Um, they talked about, you know, the actual decisions they had to make uh, and some of the actual choices and some of the actual obstacles they were up against, not just in combat, but also engineering, construction, logistics, uh, support. One of the things I found interesting, you might get a kick out of this, uh, Gianna. Um, he's talking about his uh, his assets. This is actually um, uh, Colonel Papel, uh, commanded an armored battalion, one, 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 first of the 68th. And he's uh, he's talking about um, you know his support assets. He's like, well, we didn't really. I know there's an org chart here that says you know we had a mortar platoon. We didn't really have a mortar platoon. We we, we repurposed our mortar platoon as as, as a rifle platoon because we didn't want to use our mortars. And then like the next bullet point in his in his presentation is you know close air support and combat aviation support. And I, I literally just raised my hand. I mean, I was asking questions all through the seminar. They mm -hmm. didn't mind. But I'm like, okay, wait a minute, you were using A-10s and, you know, Apaches and all this other stuff like that, but you weren't using mortars? He's like, yeah, the mortars just weren't accurate enough. They, those A-10s were actually a lot more accurate because it's a collateral damage decision, you know. So maybe we weren't using it to fold like 30 millimeter, you know, Avenger gun or whatever, but uh -huh. some of the guided ordnance on there was just, and I always thought mortars were a lot more accurate than that. But he was saying, no, these... When it comes to accurately, we got to put a shell through this one particular building, but not the building next to it. Um, yeah, we always call the uh, combat aviation support rather than our own battalion mortars. Um, again, there's a write-up port on the site. If you guys are interested in that, you know, check it out on ontabletop.com. It's part of part one of the uh, live blog. It's probably about halfway down. Um, again, there's no like super awesome table for it or whatever. It was just really kind of the highlight of the weekend. Uh, for me was to, you know, get a chance, especially after the seminar when I got to talk to them, you know, one-on-one -on -one for a little bit. It was, uh, it, it was a great, uh, it, it was a great part of the weekend for me. Perfect. If you're interested in, in modern, modern gaming, like the, or modern gaming, modern combat, the way it really goes down, um, as far as, especially at the command level, um, yeah, some of the questions that we, that we discussed and are, is in a little write-up there. Check it out. You might find it interesting. And, um, yeah, that was pretty much it for me and uh, Historicon.
Excellent. Well, guys, thank you very much. Um, just wanted to say real quick, uh, shout out to all of our supporters. Uh, Anthony, Lawrence, Jennifer, Dennis, Dylan, Jim, and Rasmus. Those are all our Patreon supporters. You can find us on Patreon, Facebook, YouTube, Podbean, Google Podcasts. Well, it's not iTunes anymore. iTunes is dead, right? Um, is it Apple Music? So Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts? Okay. Um, so you can find us all in there. Uh, make sure you tell your friends, all that good stuff. Uh, we're going to have some exciting events coming up. Uh, Chris from Phalanx Consortium, which is the U.S. rep for Dish Dash Games, sir, Skirmish, and Ultra yep. Combat. Um, I did, Really nice guy. He is very, very interested in doing a boot camp with us. Um, so we're going to start trying to coordinate something that, like that. And um, we're going to start getting some, you know, uh, stuff driven here in the U.S. side. And I know we're still talking to Spectre guys about doing a boot camp uh, probably in the U.K. for Spectre, uh, second edition. And speaking of that, I wanted to send a congratulations out to Matt, uh, who finally tied the knot with his lovely bride this week. Um, so congratulations hey. to them. Hey. And... Um, like I said, I'm going to twist Greg's arm, and we're going to do some projects, too. And, Greg, thank you very much for joining us in the studio. It was a pleasure and super interesting. So, um, to Chris, I, it's glad to have you back. And to Jim, thank you very much for all your, all your hard work there at Historicon in the Op Center. I'm looking forward to the next series, even if you won't tell us what it is. And uh, <laughs> so everybody out there, thank you very much. Uh, we're happy to be back. Uh, we're hoping season three just exceeds your expectations. And until we see you, happy gaming, and we will see you soon.